Hey friends, I'm Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay friends, let's begin. Welcome back. Can you believe that Christmas is only a few days away? I know I am sure having a hard time believing it. And this episode release happens less than one week before Christmas. So let's be sure we spend some time slowing our hearts and minds to lean into that Christmas story, to be fully prepared to celebrate that baby in the manger on Christmas Day. So glad you're here. My hope and prayer for each one of you as we walk through these days leading up to Christmas is that we will all open our Bibles and take time to linger to dig in and look closely at the story of how God came down, Emmanuel, God with us. I also pray that you will see with new eyes things that maybe you had never noticed before, or just be reminded in a new way, in a heartwarming way, of just how beautiful this rescue plan truly is, the many threads of redemption that we have been pulling these last two episodes, and truthfully, as we search for Jesus throughout all of our studies we do here on OOBT. I hope your heart remembers that Jesus has been the plan throughout it all and that we celebrate the first Advent as we wait for the second Advent. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, how I'm wishing all of you a merry early Christmas, friends. And since today we are taking a closer look at the Christmas story itself, without further ado, let's get right to it, shall we? Before we take a deep dive today, I wanted to read an overview of the entire story from the whole Bible story book by Dr. William H. Marty to have it fresh in our minds as we study. The section titled Birth and Childhood of Jesus begins. The birth of Jesus fulfills the promises God had made to Abraham and David. God had promised to bless Abraham, make him the father of a great nation, and bring a blessing to all people through him. As a descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ became the salvation to the entire world. Christ was also in the line of David and fulfilled the promise that one of David's descendants would rule forever. Four hundred years passed from the time of Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, to the coming of John the Baptist. John came as a prophet to announce the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth when Herod was king of Judea. Zechariah was a priest and served in the temple in Jerusalem. He and Elizabeth were older and had been faithful to the Lord all their lives. They did not have any children. While Zechariah was on duty, he was startled to see an angel from the Lord standing next to the incense altar. Gabriel said, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. The Lord has answered your prayer. Elizabeth will give birth to a son, and you are to name him John. Gabriel told Zechariah that John would bring them joy that he would have the power of the Holy Spirit from birth. John's mission was to prepare Israel for the coming of the Lord by calling on them to return to their God. Gabriel's message was astounding. Zechariah asked, How can I be sure of this? I am old, and so is my wife. Gabriel said the Lord had sent him to announce this good news to Zechariah, and because Zechariah didn't believe it, he would not be able to speak until it came true. Zechariah stayed so long in the temple that people began to wonder what had happened to him. When he came out, He could only make signs he couldn't speak. He returned home after this time of service was completed, and as Gabriel had promised, Elizabeth conceived. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent Gabriel to Mary, who was a virgin. She lived in Nazareth, a town in Galilee, northern Israel. Greetings, Gabriel said. You are highly favored, and the Lord is with you. Mary was frightened, but Gabriel reassured her, You have found favor with God and will give birth to a son, whom you are to name Jesus. He will be the son of the Most High God, and given the throne of David. His kingdom will last forever. Mary was bewildered. How can this be since I am a virgin? 
The angel said the Holy Spirit would cause her to conceive by the power of God, so her son would actually be God's son. Elizabeth, six months pregnant, was proof that nothing is impossible with God. Mary humbled herself before the angelic messenger and answered, May everything happen as you have promised. Then Gabriel left her. Mary decided to visit Elizabeth and Zechariah, who lived in the hill country of Judea, south of Nazareth, where Mary and her husband-to-be Joseph lived. When Mary arrived and greeted Elizabeth, Elizabeth felt her son jump in her womb. She was filled with the Spirit and cried out, You are blessed, and the son you are carrying is blessed. Mary responded by praising the Lord for her son he had given her. My soul praises the Lord, for he has been gracious to a lowly servant girl. The Mighty One has done a wonderful thing for me and for all of Israel. He has remembered the promises he made to Abraham and his descendants. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months before returning home. When Elizabeth gave birth, all her neighbors and relatives rejoiced because the Lord had been gracious to her. On the eighth day, when it was customary to circumcise and name a newborn son, Elizabeth gave him the name John. The neighbors were surprised. They thought that he would be named after Zechariah, and they wanted to know if Zechariah approved. He was still unable to speak, so he wrote John on a clay tablet. As soon as Zechariah wrote it, his speech was restored, and he began to praise God. The news of the strange and unusual events became the conversation of every household in the Judean hill country. They wondered what John would become, because he was obviously a special child, blessed by the Lord. Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, sang a prophetic song about his son. Luke chapter 1, verses 68-75 through 75 read, Praise to the Lord the God of Israel, because He has come to save His people. He has sent a mighty Savior as He has promised David and Abraham. My son will be called the prophet of the Most High God, because he will prepare people for the coming of the Lord. He will tell them how to find salvation and forgiveness of their sins. He will be a light for those in darkness and living in the shadow of death. He will guide us to peace with God. As John grew physically, he also grew spiritually. He became a remarkable man of God. When he was old enough, he chose to live alone in the wilderness. Mary was engaged to Joseph, and when he discovered that she was pregnant, he decided to break the engagement. He thought she had been unfaithful to him. He was godly and considerate, so he planned to do it discreetly rather than disgrace Mary publicly. The angel of the Lord, however, spoke to Joseph in a dream and explained that Mary had conceived by the Spirit's power. There was no reason he should not marry her. The angel said Mary would give birth to a son and they would give him the name Jesus, which means Savior, because he would save their people from their sins. When Joseph woke, he did exactly as the angel had commanded. He married Mary, but did not have sexual relations with her until she had given birth to their son, Jesus. Jesus was born during the rule of the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, who issued a decree requiring all Jews to register in the town of their birth. Joseph, from Bethlehem, went there to register and took Mary with him even though she was expecting a child. In Bethlehem, Mary gave birth. They had to place their newborn baby in a feeding trough for animals because they couldn't find a room in the inn. The birth of Jesus would have gone unnoticed had not the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds. It was during the darkness of the night while they were watching sheep that he appeared to them and the glory of the Lord surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel said, Do not be afraid. I have good news. The Savior, who is Christ the Lord, has been born in the city of David in Bethlehem. You will know who he is because he is lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly, a large group of angels appeared and praised God, singing glory to God and peace to men on earth. They disappeared as suddenly as they had appeared. The shepherds discussed what had happened and decided to go to Bethlehem. They found Joseph and Mary and the baby exactly as the angel had said. They told everyone what they had seen. Mary, however, kept silent and treasured everything in her heart. Jesus' parents were devoted Jews. As instructed by the angel, Mary and Joseph named their son Jesus on the eighth day after his birth. 
they also fulfilled all the requirements in the law of Moses in raising Jesus. After forty days, they went to Jerusalem to dedicate him to the Lord. Many in Israel were longing for a messianic savior. Simeon had lived his entire life assured that he would not die until he had seen the anointed one. On the day of Jesus' dedication, the Spirit led Simeon to the temple when Mary and Joseph came to dedicate Jesus. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Now I can die in peace, because I have seen the Savior you have sent to save the nations and your people Israel. Simeon also blessed Mary and Joseph and predicted Mary would experience intense pain because of people's rejection of her son. A prophetess named Anna was also in the temple at the time of the dedication. Her husband had died after they had been married only seven years. She was now 84 and had never left the temple, and she had devoted herself to prayer and serving the Lord. When she heard Simeon speaking to Mary and Joseph, she began praising God and told everyone that God had sent their son to save Israel. In addition, people from distant lands were looking for the Messiah. In the east, wise men had seen the star and made the journey to Jerusalem to worship the king of the Jews. Not everyone considered the Messiah's birth an amazing work of God, though. When King Herod heard about the birth of Jesus, he feared Jesus would challenge him as king. He asked the religious leaders and teachers for information, and they told him a prophet had predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Herod met with the wise men and asked them to report to him after they found the child, so he could worship him also, he said. After the wise men met with Herod, the star guided them to Bethlehem and stopped over the house where Mary and Joseph were staying. When they saw Mary's son, they bowed and gave him gifts of gold and valuable spices. After worshiping the child, they returned to their own country by a different route because an angel had warned them that Herod intended to kill the child, not worship him. The angel also warned Joseph in a dream of Herod's murderous intention. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to return. Herod is plotting to kill your son. Joseph didn't even wait for daylight. He left for Egypt during the night. Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had departed without informing him of the child's exact location. He went on a rampage and ordered his soldiers to kill all the boys under two years of age in the Bethlehem area. After the death of Herod, the angel of the Lord told Joseph it was safe for him to return to Israel. Instead of returning to Bethlehem, they went to their hometown of Nazareth in the northern province of Galilee, where Jesus spent the rest of his growing up years. Friends, this is the Christmas story. This is the story of Emmanuel, God with us, coming to the world as part of the best rescue story ever. Please be sure to go to the show notes where I've not only listed all the scriptures related to the Christmas story, but also some accompanying Christmas carols that you can play as you read through. As mentioned in the last episode, please be sure to take a close look and listen of those lyrics, and possibly even do some research to read those words for yourself to see how the gospel story plays out in each one of those carols we sing as tradition. It has been so eye-opening for me to closely look at the words, especially in light of all we have been learning in our studies through Genesis and Exodus and more. So good. How about we start our time in the Christmas story with a Passover? Makes perfect sense, right? (laughs) Actually, I do hope it soon does make sense if it doesn't already. Stay with me here, my OOBTers. I am guessing many of you are asking the same question I was asking when I was introduced to this connection in my research. The short answer? Jesus' first visit to the temple where Simeon and Anna met him. A bit longer answer? Mary and Joseph honored the command to consecrate the firstborn as given by God after the Passover in Egypt. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's read this section called Lamb of God about Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 30 from Sherry Gregg's Advent book. It begins, Moses' sandals shuffled wearily along the rapidly darkening streets of Hiramsis as he prepared to say goodbye to the land of his birth, a land that had never quite been home. He was born the son of Hebrew slaves, yet raised as the son of an Egyptian princess. 
never Egyptian enough for Pharaoh's court, forever too Egyptian for his own people. Moses had always been an outsider. A balmy evening breeze swept his gray hair back from his forehead. He wore it shorter now than he had when he fled from Pharaoh's wrath so many years before. Years of exile in Midian had freed Moses of most of the outer trappings he had acquired in Egypt. It didn't take long to trade his fine linen tunic for the rough wool of a shepherd's kilt. Gradually, the beard softened the lines of his once clean-shaven face. The dirt and grime of the desert quickly replaced costly Egyptian cosmetics. After all, the sheep and goats didn't care whether his eyes were lined with coal. As Moses passed by a home on the right side of the narrow street, an Israelite man ducked beneath the doorway and stood on his threshold. He held a clay pot in one hand and a brush fashioned from hyssop in the other. He carefully dipped the brush into the pot, soaking the hyssop in lamb's blood. Then he solemnly painted the sides and top of the doorframe with blood, a sign of redemption to the destroying angel that would sweep through Egypt in search of the firstborn of every household. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, the Lord said, as found in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. The scent of roast lamb filled the night air as each family carefully followed God's instruction for the first Passover meal. Slaughter a lamb without blemish at twilight, roast it over the fire. Not one of its bones is to be broken. Moses gripped the staff in his right hand a bit tighter. The simple shepherd's staff had become his constant companion as he led his father-in-law's sheep in the hills of Midian. When Moses was sent back to Egypt, God turned it into an instrument of wonder, a sign to all of Egypt that he alone was God. By God's power, the staff became a snake in Moses' hand on command. One dip of the staff into the Nile and the river turned to blood. He waved it over the waters of Egypt and frogs covered the land. Dust turned to gnats. Thunder, hail, and lightning crashed to the earth. Locusts devoured the land down to the last blade of grass. Boils erupted on the people's skin. Darkness blotted out the sun. Flies swarmed and livestock perished. God released plague after plague on Egypt and still Pharaoh refused to free the children of Abraham from slavery. But that was about to change. At midnight, the last plague would fall and with it, Pharaoh's will. After that, Moses' staff would lead, protect, and guide once again. But this time, instead of sheep, he would tenderly lead God's people out of slavery and into the land of promise. The night grew darker, colder, and quieter, as if the very land was holding its breath. Moses sank down to rest at the city gate and glanced up at the rising moon. It was almost midnight. A moment later, a long, low wail rose in the distance, shattering the stillness. It was joined by another, and another until a chorus of grief and loss filled the night. Moses bowed his head in sorrow and turned to face the darkness outside the city walls. And he waited. Moses watched as the light of half a dozen reed torches bobbed ever nearer as Pharaoh's officials approached the walls. Within the hour, he and Aaron were standing before Pharaoh for the final time. Tall columns, the tops of which were carved into the petals of the lotus flower and gracefully touching the ceiling, lined the space. Detailed reliefs depicting the Pharaoh's military victories, as well as his divinity, covered the walls in brilliant color, awash in the golden glow of lamplight. Pharaoh was seated on his throne as his officials and servants lined the wall, their eyes fixed in terror on the two Hebrews in their midst. An uneasy silence filled the room as Pharaoh struggled to control his emotions. When he spoke at last, his voice trembled. Get out of here and be done with you, you and your Israelites, Pharaoh said. Go worship God on your own terms, and yes, take your sheep and cattle as you've insisted, but go and bless me. Chapter 12, verses 31 and 32 from the message. When Moses and Aaron walked back through the gate of Pyramses, they found the city in chaos. Each Israelite home was surrounded by terrified Egyptian neighbors begging them to leave their land. As the Israelites gathered their families, livestock, and a few meager possessions, they fell into line behind Moses. The Egyptians pressed treasures of gold and silver into their hands to speed them on their way. Once out of the city, Moses turned to look back at the long line of newly freed slaves. 
72 of Abraham's descendants entered Egypt in the time of Joseph. Thousands upon thousands now set their eyes and hopes on Canaan. Their faces were gaunt, their eyes fearful, their bodies and hearts broken by the yoke of slavery, and yet they carried within them God's hope for the world. One day, from the ragged rabble of slaves who had just celebrated their first Passover, would come the Messiah, the second Adam, born to reverse the curse. Okay, friends, let's read a bit more from Exodus to refresh our memory from previous OOBT studies and also provide us with framework before we move on to that visit to the temple. Exodus chapter 13 in the New Living Translation begins, Dedication of the Firstborn. Then the Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belongs to me. So Moses said to the people, This is a day to remember forever, the day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. And then picking back up with verse 11, This is what you must do when the Lord fulfills the promise he swore to you and your ancestors. When he gives you the land where the Canaanites now live, you must present all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals to the Lord, for they belong to him. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or young goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. And in the future, your children will ask you, what does all this mean? Then you will tell them, with the power of his mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the place of our slavery. Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, so the Lord killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both people and animals. This is why I now sacrifice all the firstborn males to the Lord, except the firstborn sons are always bought back. This ceremony will be like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. It is a reminder that the power of the Lord's mighty hand brought us out of Egypt. And finally, in Exodus chapter 34, we read in verse 19, The firstborn of every male belongs to me, including the firstborn males from your herds of cattle and your flocks of sheep and goats. A firstborn donkey may be bought back from the Lord by presenting a lamb or a young goat in its place. But if you do not buy it back, you must break its neck. However, you must buy back every firstborn son. No one may appear before me without an offering. So my OB tears, that last part is our connection here. You must buy back every firstborn son. No one may appear before me without an offering. With these Exodus verses now fresh in her mind, and with the fact that the more I study Simeon and Anna in this story, the sadder I am that we often seem to stop when reading the Christmas account before we get to them. It's such a touching story of our promise keeper. So guess what, friends? We're going to take a deep dive today. Mary and Joseph had already shown themselves to be obedient to God, and Jesus' circumcision and presentation at the temple was another example of that obedience. Jesus was the firstborn in his earthly father, and the one and only Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, Colossians 1.15. The law for the dedication of the firstborn mentioned in Luke chapter 2, verse 23, was given after the Passover of Egypt. This ceremony and redemption of the firstborn son was to serve as a reminder of God's rescue of his people and to dedicate the firstborn into God's service. The Israelites could point to the ritual and say, See what God has done for us, as found in Exodus chapter 13, verses 11 through 16. This early moment in Jesus' life on earth points to his purpose. He is redeemed as a firstborn, and he will redeem us with his life. Also, everything we know about Simeon is contained in these verses. I love how one commentary frames it. Who he was was unimportant to Luke. Only the role he played in Jesus' story is important. We know that Simeon was a righteous man, and the Holy Spirit was on him. He was looking forward to the day when God's plan for his people would be fulfilled in the Messiah. He went to the temple on that particular day under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Okay, friends, with all that said, let's read from Angela Hunt's book, The Star of Wonder, 
in a chapter about the temple. The miracle of the Messiah's arrival did not end with the baby's birth. Forty days later, Mary and Joseph slipped away from the Bethlehem house and began the six-mile walk to Jerusalem. Eight days after Jesus' birth, after the couple had found a more suitable place to stay, the new parents held their son's naming ceremony. Joseph publicly proclaimed that the child would be called Yeshua, a name unknown in his or Mary's family, a name meaning salvation. In obedience to the law, the baby was circumcised according to the covenant God established with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10-14. through 14. The surrounding nations waited until their sons reached puberty before circumcising them, but God's claim on a son of Abraham's life began in infancy. From babyhood, circumcision would mark Yeshua as one of God's chosen people. Since giving birth to her son, Mary had kept to herself because she was ceremonially unclean. Until she made her purification offering, she would be forbidden to touch any consecrated item or worship in a synagogue or the temple. Mary and Joseph entered the city and walked through the bustling streets. Several milk baths stood south of the temple mount, so she handed the baby to Joseph and entered one. After slipping out of her veil and tunic, she walked into the pool, knelt, and immersed herself in the running water. Immersion in a milk veil was only part of the purification process. Mary still had to complete a sacrifice and a redemption ritual. Since all firstborns belonged to Adonai, her son would have to be redeemed with the payment of five shekels. Two turtle doves, the offering specified for a poor woman, would serve as Mary's sin and purification offerings. Joseph purchased two doves in the outer courtyard, and then Mary entered the court of the women. She spotted a man directing new mothers to the steps that led from the court of the women to the court of Israel. As the worshippers' prayers rose and the attending priests entered the space with the golden altar, she must have thanked God for bringing her through the rigors and risks of childbirth. Jewish women were not blind to the scriptural significance of childbearing. Each time a woman gives birth, they often said, she approaches death. Through great travail, she strikes a serpent who tempted Eve. The serpent longs for our death, but when we bring forth life, we are victorious, even if we die. Mary approached the gate and handed the wooden birdcage to a waiting Levite. The first bird paid for Mary's sins, the second was an offering for her purification. Afterward, Mary found Joseph in the crowd and together they went to another Levite for the redemption of the firstborn. He who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to redeem the firstborn, the Levite recited. Joseph gave the proper response. He who has given us life. The priest put out his hand and Joseph placed five silver shekels in the man's palm. Your son is redeemed, the priest said, concluding the ceremony. Joseph had no sooner turned from the priest when Simeon shouted from across the court and strode toward them with an urgency that belied his years. Neither Mary nor Joseph knew that God had made Simeon a promise. In Luke chapter 2 verse 26 it says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the anointed one of God. Simeon took one look at the child in Mary's arms and extended his arms. A wavering smile shone through the man's long beard as Mary surrendered the baby. Luke chapter 2 verses 29-32 read, Now may you let your servant go in peace, O sovereign master, according to your word, Simeon said. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation for the nations, Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. In only a few words, Simeon had declared two important truths. First, the Messiah would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles, a startling statement because at that point, most Jews were not sure God would do anything for the Gentiles. God had declared that Israel was his son, his firstborn, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. The question of whether Gentiles would receive salvation had been debated by Jewish sages for generations, but Simeon proclaimed that Jesus had been born to bring salvation to all. Simeon also said the Messiah would bring glory upon Israel. Jesus would be more than revelation to them. He would be the Shekinah Isaiah had predicted in Isaiah 60, verses 1-3. through Arise, shine, for your light has come. 
the glory of God has risen on you. For behold, darkness covers the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But God will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brilliance of your rising. Then Simeon said to Mary, Behold, this one is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that is opposed, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be uncovered. And even for you a sword will pierce through your soul. Luke chapter 2 verses 34 and 35. Simeon foretold that Jesus would cause division in Israel. Those who received salvation would rise and those who rejected salvation would fall. Jesus would be a rock of offense for many. Romans chapter 9 verse 33. And because he had been born to Mary, Jesus would cause a sword to pierce her soul. She was present with him and the Jewish leaders rejected him and called him demon-possessed. She observed the people turning against him. The sword pierced the deepest when she saw her son hanging on the cross. Mary herself would have to make up her mind about the salvation her son offers, as her child is set for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, including her. Before Joseph and Mary left the temple, an elderly woman, Anna, approached them. Mary might have recognized her as a prophetess who for years had been a fixture in the court of women. A widow, Anna did nothing but pray and worship day and night, fasting and pleading with Adonai for the salvation of Israel. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what Anna said, except that she began praising God and speaking about the child to all those waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 2, verse 38. The others in the temple must have been filled with joy, or perhaps bewilderment. Could this unassuming couple's infant possibly be the long-awaited Messiah? We think of the Christmas story as joyful and rightly so, but just as a tapestry is woven of both bright and dark threads, the joy of the nativity must be juxtaposed against the suffering of the sacrifice. Simeon's words to Mary and Joseph were filled with hope, joy, and pain. As human beings, we are averse to suffering. No one enjoys going to the dentist and no one volunteers to experience pain unless motivated by some degree of love. A mother would donate a kidney to save her child's life. A firefighter would rush into a burning building to rescue someone who's trapped. Parents will skip lunch to buy Christmas gifts for their kids and people will donate to give to the less fortunate a delicious turkey dinner. For love, most of us are willing to set aside our comfort if we can help someone. Magnify that impulse by infinity and you can almost understand the love that compelled God the Father to send His Son and the Son's willingness to endure the pain, weakness, and humility of being born in human flesh, of becoming a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling, of being spurned by His own family. Do you recall in verse 32, Simeon claimed that the salvation he saw with the coming of the Christ child would be the light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. The Old Testament reveals that Israel already had divine revelation. God made himself known through the, his words and his work. But Jesus, the Messiah, came to reveal God's salvation as available for all people. At Christmas time, we often talk about Jesus as a Prince of Peace, and it is true that Jesus died and rose again so that we might have peace with God. Romans 4, 25 through chapter 5, verse 1 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember all of our talk about Jesus as a Prince of Peace in the last episode, my OOBTers? I hope so. <laughs> However, when Simeon spoke to Mary, he told her that Jesus' ministry would not be without conflict. As much as the gospel brings peace between God and sinners, it also brings division between those aligned with Jesus and those who reject him. And this is a conflict Simeon predicted as well. The fall and rise of many shows how people react differently to the message of Christ. Some will choose to follow Jesus while others will reject him. Eventually, that conflict led to Jesus' death, a sword that pierced his mother's soul.
in LifeWay's Our Hope Is Come study, on day four, in a section titled Believe in God's Promises by Amanda May Steele, it reads, Do you have a bucket list of must-dos for your lifetime? If you do, either in your head or on paper, it likely includes a big-ticket item or two, something like an exotic trip, meeting a celebrity, or starting a family of your own. Maybe it's something exhilarating like hiking Mount Everest, starting a business, or building a school in a rural area in the Philippines. Amanda said, As I'm writing this, my dad has been in the hospital for more than a week. At times we've been unsure if he'll make it, but he's resolved to fight for his life and stick around for at least the next few months. He hopes to check one more item off his bucket list, the arrival of my first child and his first grandchild, something he has anticipated for nearly a decade. A decade seems like a long time to wait for something specific, but in the Bible we read about another man who spent a lot longer waiting for someone's arrival the arrival of the Messiah, to be exact. Shortly after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple as part of the Jewish rituals that followed a child's birth. While there, they met a man named Simeon, who is described as righteous and devout. The text tells us that he was looking forward to Israel's consolation, another way of saying he was waiting for God to deliver on his promise to save his people. We also read that the presence of the Holy Spirit was with Simeon, and the Spirit revealed to Simeon that he would meet the Messiah. Talk about a bucket list item. Jesus promised that the Father would send the Holy Spirit to indwell believers after he left, as found in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, and 2, 1 through 4. But prior to that event, we read about times when the Holy Spirit came upon certain individuals to reveal God's truth to them. This was the case with Simeon, and it was the case with another man involved in the Christmas story. Similarly to Simeon, Zechariah was described as righteous in God's sight in Luke chapter 1, verse 6. The Holy Spirit led Zechariah to prophesy about his son John and how he would prepare the way for Jesus. The same Spirit led Simeon to the temple when Joseph, Mary, and Jesus would also be there. And the same Spirit gave Simeon the ability to affirm Jesus' identity as God's promised one. When Simeon met Jesus, he described him as your God's salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. In other words, Jesus is hope for all people. As Dr. David Jeremiah notes on verse 32 in the Jeremiah Study Bible, Apart from the Spirit of God, an Orthodox first-century Jew would never have looked at the Messiah and turned his blessing to the Gentiles, for the Jews believed the Messiah would come for Israel alone. Jesus was so much more than just the consolation of Israel that Simeon anticipated. It's no wonder that Joseph and Mary marveled at the things Simeon was saying. Simeon wasn't the only person excited to meet Jesus that day in the temple. Like Simeon, Anna was old, and like Simeon, Anna was a faithful servant of God. Anna spent all of her time in the temple where she worshipped God fasted and prayed. This woman's devotion to God is admirable, and God rewarded it by including her among the first few people who met Jesus. These verses also refer to both Simeon and Anna as prophets. The New Living Translation Life Application Bible study note here says that prophets did not necessarily predict the future. Their main role was to speak for God, proclaiming His truth. As such, Anna's response to meeting Jesus fell right in line with what we know about her. She praised God and shared about Jesus with others. Can you imagine being at the temple that day and hearing from not one but two prophets that the child Jesus was indeed the Messiah? What a monumental moment in both Simeon and Anna's lives. Both of them had faithfully dedicated their lives to loving and serving the Lord, and God granted both of them the privilege of getting to meet and share about the one true Messiah. The hopes of Simeon and Anna were fulfilled that day when they met Jesus, and they responded by praising God for His gift and sharing the great news. May we be people who boldly praise God and share the hope of Jesus this season. May we be people who are willing and ready to follow God's lead and who experience the joy of His presence, just as Simeon and Anna did on that day more than 2,000 years ago.
We close out Jesus' family's time at the temple with a note that Mary and Joseph had completed everything according to the law of the Lord. Mary and Joseph were pious parents raising Jesus according to the law God had given to his people for their good and his glory. Finally, we read that Jesus grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Moving on to those wise men in the Christmas story, I found some interesting ties and perspectives of possible hows and whys the wise men would even care to follow the star. The Eastern Kingdom in Angela Hunt's Star of Wonder book has this to say about what we see happening in Matthew chapter 2. 1,300 years before the birth of Christ, the Hebrews left Egypt and marched toward the Promised Land. Their approach terrified the kings in that reason, so Balak, king of Moab, sent for a seer named Balaam. Balak offered Balaam great riches if he would curse the children of Israel. Imagine Balaam's surprise when he muttered his incantations and heard, not from a demon, but from Almighty God. God told Balaam not to say a word apart from what he told him to say. After blessing Israel twice, Balaam again heard the voice of God and gave the frustrated king yet another blessing for Israel. Numbers chapter 24 verse 17 reads, I see him, yet not at this moment. I behold him, yet not in this location. For a star will come from Jacob, a scepter will rise from Israel. Balaam's prophecy was recorded in the scriptures. When Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC, copies of those scriptures were carried by captive Jews as they were marched to Babylon. While in Babylon, devout Jews like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego earned positions of authority in the king's court. Daniel, who remained faithful to his God, answered the king's questions when the royal wise men could not, and even saved their lives. Daniel chapter 2, verse 24. In gratitude, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel chief of the wise men. Is it not possible that some of those wise men came to believe in Daniel's God? As time passed, the wise men of the Medio-Persian kingdom probably read the Hebrew scriptures as well as Daniel's book of prophecy. They and their successors would have been familiar with Balaam's prophecy about a star and a scepter rising from Israel. Daniel was not the only righteous Jew the Persians would have known. They would have subsequently become acquainted with Mordecai, Queen Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra, a scribe, priest, and Torah teacher who led the exiles from Babylon back to Judea. Wise men in the east counted the passing years and searched the sky. And though they had the Hebrew scriptures that existed in the time of the exile, they did not have the book of Micah, a latter prophet, so they did not know where the king would be born. As is mentioned in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1-6 through 6 and 9-11, through 11, God sent a heavenly sign to guide these wise men from the east. Some scholars believe the Bethlehem star was a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn, an alignment that occurs about every 19 years and occurred in 7 BC. Angela said, I'm not sure a predictable conjunction of stars, especially one that occurred with such regularity, could persuade the Magi to form a caravan and set out for Jerusalem. And consider this, after the wise men visited Herod, the star moved and led them directly to the house where the child was. It then disappeared after the wise men's departure, thwarting Herod's attempts to find and destroy the child. I believe the Bethlehem star could have been the Shekinah, the visible glory of God. You may not find the word Shekinah in your Bible translation. Instead, you may read about the glory of the Lord or another visible manifestation of God's presence. The word comes from the word shaken, meaning to dwell or abide. Moses experienced the Shekinah when he spotted a bush that was on fire, but not consumed by the flames. As he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, the Shekinah moved as a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. It moved purposefully, just like the Bethlehem star did many years later. The Shekinah glory, reflected from God, left Moses' face with a residual glow as he came down from Mount Sinai. That same glory filled the tabernacle when the Jews camped in the desert. That same glory filled the temple when Solomon dedicated it, and then it moved into the Holy of Holies. But when the people fell into sin, the Shekinah left the temple, though in stages.
first the Shekinah moved from the Holy of Holies to the threshold of the temple door, and then to the eastern gate. Then, as the prophet Ezekiel had forewarned, the Shekinah rose and hovered over the Mount of Olives before vanishing altogether, as found in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. Years later, when Jesus was born, the Shekinah glory resided in a new abode, the physical body of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 verse 14, it reads, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We looked upon His glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those who followed Yeshua during his ministry beheld his glory, though they did not always understand what they were witnessing. Isaiah prophesied of that day when he wrote, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, The people walking in darkness will see a great light. Upon those dwelling in the land of the shadow of death, light will shine. Fifty days after Passover, the Shekinah appeared as individual tongues of flame when the Holy Spirit baptized the believers, who waited in the upper room for the Comforter, the Spirit of God. The visible glory of God had returned, but not to Herod's temple. After Pentecost, it was housed in flesh, tabernacled in believers who would live, act, and pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. The light of the world lived among people, and still does. Does this also sound familiar, my OB tears? We simply can't get away from God tabernacling or dwelling, abiding with us. God with us is so very important. This truth is found all over the pages of Scripture. So good. In day 23 of Proverb 31's Pointing to the Promise Study, it has this to say about the wise men. Completely unique to the book of Matthew is a look into the wise men who came to visit Jesus. Our Christmas songs and pageants always depict three kings who arrive at the manger. But let's look at this event from a historical perspective. Many scholars believe that at least two years have passed between Jesus' birth and the wise men's visit. Sometimes the wise men are referred to as magi from the Greek word magoi. This is where we get our words magic and magician. But the word magi really refers to a sage. They were probably students who specialized in astrology, medicine, or natural sciences, a common practice in this time period. They were definitely wealthy men of high standing in society, meaning they were respected both in politics and religion, but they were not necessarily kings. Also notice that nowhere does it say that there were three men. For all we know, there could have been 30. And men of this standing, traveling this distance, probably traveled with an entire entourage. Plus, they traveled over 1,000 miles of rugged terrain through the desert. Back in Babylon, which was east of Judea, there remained a large Jewish community from back in the days of the exile. It appeared these wise men from the east had been influenced by Jewish teachings as they came looking for the king of the Jews by following a star. And although they lived in a pagan culture, God chose to reveal himself to them through the star because he wanted them to find Jesus. So amazing to consider. Moving on, day 25 in the Pointing to the Promise study says, When the wise men first saw the star in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, it simply said it rose. Using the little information they had, they set out toward the most obvious place you would expect to find the king of the Jews, Jerusalem. It was the capital city and held the palace. But the king they sought was not here. After visiting with King Herod, the wise men followed his advice to head toward Bethlehem. These men stepped out in faith and started heading south following the supernatural event that takes place in Matthew chapter 2, verse 9, which reads, The star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. This means they ended up in Jerusalem, which was six miles north of Bethlehem. Stars usually move from east to west, not north to south. This further demonstrates a miraculous event recorded here in Matthew. And this is also similar to an event that took place in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. God went ahead of them as the Israelites traveled in the wilderness. He guided them with a pillar of cloud during the day and provided light at night with a pillar of fire. God used a still star in the sky. He used the wise men's own knowledge, 
He used an evil king and he used a supernatural event all to guide these men toward Jesus. Wow. And as just a bit more about that star, remember the Eastern Kingdom reading suggested it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. Other resources suggest it could have been a comet. Or around 4 BC, by a modern reckoning of our calendar, Jupiter moved to within a half a degree of planet Venus. To ancient eyes, it would have looked like a giant star. This happened to be in the constellation Virgo, which means virgin. Jupiter is a king of the planets, so they could have concluded that the king was born to a virgin. In day five of Lifeway's Our Hope Has Come study, the Believe in God Sovereignty section says, This passage about the Magi contains no shortage of mysteries. We don't know exactly where they came from or how many were in the caravan, but here's what we do know. The wise men saw an unfamiliar star as its first rising, and they knew it meant something. Curiosity peaked, they set out on a long journey. And what about that supernatural star? A star moved across the sky and led the Magi to Jesus. That's one amazing celestial event. Scholars have debated about the origin of the star as well. Was an alignment of planets, or maybe a comet with a really long tail? But let's not rule out the possibility that the God of the universe created a magnificent star for the specific purpose. No matter the star's origin, it was a miracle nonetheless. In his perfect timing, God worked supernaturally to lead these men to Jesus. Matthew tells us that the wise men's journey led them to Jerusalem, where they started asking around, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The Magi connected the celestial event to the birth of a king. Some scholars believe these wise men had access to ancient manuscripts, including the Old Testament prophecies, and associated the star with the birth of the long-awaited Messiah. King Herod heard about their inquiries and was worried. Matthew says Herod was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Herod was most likely anxious because he knew he wasn't the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He had aligned himself with Rome politically and was given the rule of Judea in exchange for his loyalty. Now the promised Messiah threatened his position and Rome's power. Herod had no idea where the Messiah was supposed to be born. He gathered the chief priests and scribes, those considered experts from the Old Testament law, and asked them for the location. Citing a prophecy from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, they told Herod that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Sneaky Herod then met secretly with the wise men and manipulated their trust. He even got them to reveal the exact time the star appeared. He would later use this information as a, in a horrific act of power and paranoia. Herod sent the Magi to Bethlehem saying, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so I can go to worship him too. Verse 8. The wise men left Herod and lo and behold there was that star of wonder again. Matthew wrote, When they saw the star they were overwhelmed with joy. Verse 10. The star led them directly to Jesus. When the wise men found Jesus and Mary, they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They gave him expensive gifts fit for a king. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Little did they know how valuable those gifts would be to this lowly family. Those extravagant gifts most likely provided the means for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to flee to Egypt and escape Herod's treacherous plan to kill the newborn king. After they saw and worshipped Jesus, the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Scripture tells us they returned to their home country by another route, avoiding Herod and his evil plot. And that's the last we hear of these mysterious magi. As we already noted, there's a fair amount of mystery in this passage. A supernatural star, mysterious men from a distant land, unexpected gifts that came in just the nick of time, and a divine dream that circumvented the second meeting with a crazed king. This story is a reminder that God's ways aren't our ways, and His plans rarely fit into a nice, neat little package that we can comprehend. But God has a plan and provision for our salvation. Of that, we can be sure. Moving on to another section in Lifeways Our Hope Has Come study called Look to the Promises Kept. It says, 
By the time we come to Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, some important events have transpired in just the two or so short years Jesus has been alive. Remember, Herod learned through the Magi about some age-old prophecies foretelling the birth of a Jewish king, and he wasn't happy about them. Herod's strategy to resolve the issue was to kill the child, but that meant he needed to learn where the child was located. So he asked the Magi to return to give him the coordinates of Jesus once they found him. However, the men were warned in a dream to avoid Herod and returned home by a different route, if you remember and they obeyed. Joseph also received a dream warning from God by way of an angel who instructed him to take Jesus and Mary to Egypt far away from Herod and his murderous plan. Egypt was approximately 90 miles from Bethlehem. Though the whole ordeal seems like God is winning by the skin of his teeth, coming up with 11th hour solutions to thwart Herod's plans, verse 15 closes by telling us otherwise. In verse 15, Matthew connects the Israelites' time in Egypt with Jesus's through words from the prophet Hosea, who wrote, In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Nothing surprises God. In fact, he was in control the entire time, using the real-time events to do something very specific. With all that in mind, my OOB tears, let's spend some more time in Sherry Gregg's Advent book in a section titled, Out of Egypt I Called My Son. It begins, Get up. Joseph tossed fitfully back and forth on his sleeping mat as an angel's sudden appearance in his dream. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Joseph's eyes flew wide open in the dark, his heart pounding in his chest. He reached past the curly-haired infant sleeping beside him to waken Mary. Mary, Mary, Joseph whispered as he shook her arms. Wake up. Mary pushed herself up on her elbow and looked at him with alarm. Joseph, what's wrong? She asked sleepily. Mary, we have to flee. The Lord just came to me in a dream and told me Herod is going to search for Jesus to kill him. We have been instructed to go to Egypt until it is safe to return. Instantly, Mary was on her feet. She lit a lamp, pulled a bag from the peg on a wall, and began to pack some food for the trip and clothes for the baby. Joseph hurried across the room and moved a table away from the wall. He knelt on the floor and ran his hands along the stones in the wall in front of him until he located the loose brick. He grasped the edges with his fingers, wiggled it, and pulled it loose. He reached inside the opening and removed a bag of gold a box of frankincense, and a jar of myrrh. These gifts the men from the east had brought only days before would fund their journey. Joseph placed the treasures in his bag and took Mary's parcels from her. She bent down and scooped Jesus into her arms. He instinctively snuggled into the curve of her neck and pushed his thumb into his mouth without ever awakening. Joseph smiled sadly at his son and reached to tenderly stroke his curls. We have to go, he said to Mary. She blinked back tears and nodded her assent. They walked down the stairs to the stable below. Joseph slipped a rope around the donkey's neck and led it outside as Mary and Jesus followed. Bethlehem was silent under the moonlight. Joseph helped his wife and son onto the donkey and tied the bags onto its back. Then Joseph grasped the rope and began to walk away from all he had ever known. Egypt. It seemed a bit ironic that the country synonymous with Israel's slavery would shelter her Redeemer. But there was infinite wisdom in God's plan. Egypt was nearby, and Herod would never risk pursuing the Christ child too far within the borders of that land. Years before, Herod's superior, Mark Antony, had been consumed with passion for Egypt's queen, Cleopatra. She was consumed by passion as well, but hers was a passion for power. One of Cleopatra's greatest desires was to dominate and destroy Herod the Great. She relentlessly tried to convince her lover to give her Herod's kingdom. In 35 BC, Mark Antony relented and transferred large tracts of Palestine to Cleopatra. But just five years later, their love affair came to a dramatic end with their suicides, and Herod took the opportunity to bring his lost territories back under his control. However, even after their deaths, the powerful legacy left behind by Cleopatra and Mark Antony 
still served to limit Herod's reach. Egypt was a good hiding place for another reason as well. When the priesthood of Jerusalem became corrupt under Roman rule, members of the true Zadokite priestly line fled to Egypt to find protection. They built a city there and named it Leonopolis, the city of lions. The Jewish priest Onias received the Ptolemy's blessing to build a temple to Jehovah. It was the only Jewish sanctuary outside of Jerusalem where sacrifices were offered. This community of observant Jews would open their arms to the young family and shelter them until the threat of Herod had passed. The road before Joseph and Mary stretched dark and lonely into the night as they left Bethlehem behind. Then somewhere in the distance they heard crashes, shouts, and above all, a mournful wail piercing the night. That wail was joined by another and another, growing and growing as an ancient prophecy was fulfilled. In his determination to kill Jesus, Herod had ordered his soldiers to slaughter all of Bethlehem's baby boys under the age of two. Joseph grasped the rope tighter and quickened his pace. Mary clutched her baby boy to her chest and buried her face into his hair to muffle her sobs. And Jesus slept. God's son, the infinite one, was wrapped in vulnerability and nestled in the arms of a young girl. He would go to Egypt, and when the time was right, God would call his son back to the land of Israel to fulfill his divine and eternal purpose. Jesus would then walk among his people, point the way to the kingdom of God, and then allow himself to be led like a lamb to the slaughter for the redemption of all mankind. Oh, my OBTers had such a beautiful perspective of what all this may have been like for Mary and Joseph. But now let's turn our attention back to King Herod. Herod waited and waited, and eventually he realized he was outwitted by the Magi. That little boy was still out there somewhere, a threat to his rule. What follows is the most tragic scene in the Christmas story, an event known in history as the Massacre of the Innocents. Thinking he somehow had the power and cleverness to sabotage the plans of our all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God yet again, Herod slaughtered a town's worth of little boys in Bethlehem and beyond, ages two and under, the age Jesus probably was. Can you imagine the confusion, the heartbreak, the loss? These families had no idea a larger story was going on, and even if they had known, that knowledge wouldn't have lessened their pain. Based on the population of villages like Bethlehem, we can assume that somewhere between 10 and 20 boys under the age of two would have been killed. A group of boys in that little town, gone. What anguish and pain for the families of Bethlehem. The words from the prophet Jeremiah in verse 18 paint a picture of unbearable grief and mourning. I can only imagine those mothers crying out, Where are you, God? Verse 18 is a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah where he personifies the mothers of Israel as Rachel. Back in Genesis, during the age of the patriarchs, Rachel was the wife of Jacob. Her sons, Joseph and Benjamin, were threatened with being no more as they were carried away into Egypt. Many years later, the children of Israel were taken from their land and carried off into exile and Jeremiah described their mothers in similar language. Like Rachel's sons, they too were mourned over bitterly because they are no more, rendering Israel a barren, dead nation. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. The grief was so deep in Jeremiah's day, he spoke of it as if the loss was felt by Rachel herself. Fast forward to the time of Christ, and Matthew used the same text to reveal that yet another part of Israel's story would be both fulfilled and restored in Christ. Yes, Rachel cried out into the night, a city of mothers doubled over in pain. But all those voices rising up above the city, they weren't meaningless. A parent's voice crying out over the death of a son was a signal, a signal with equal importance as every other prophecy about Christ, that the Messiah was here. As we've all experienced by now, the joyful and pleasant moments aren't the only things that fulfill the purposes of God in this world. The dark ones count for something, too. They matter. There's something going on with them. God is doing something in the shadows, even if we don't have any answers. We can all agree this isn't the sort of story we want to tell at Christmas time. We want to remember the bright things, Jesus, 
the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world, yes, but he is the light who shines into the darkness. Jesus wasn't born into a greeting card or a quaint nativity scene where hot chocolate simmers on the iron stove behind the manger and classic Christmas songs hang in the air. No, our Savior was born into the real world, and it's a dark one. The world of you and me, of sin and brokenness. A world where massacres happen, where people are so blinded by the false promises of power and prestige that they're literally willing to kill. A world with all its mourning and its problems and its Herods, with mothers who still weep and mourn and question the ways of God. The darkness can seem unbearable, but the good news for us is this. Even Herod-level darkness didn't scare Jesus off from coming to us. Yes, Herod brought many sons to their grave, but this king, he will bring many sons to glory. The circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth and early childhood are wrought with constant complications and plot twists. At almost every juncture, all hope seemed lost, or at least deferred. A virgin mother, no sufficient place to be born, a murderous king, evacuation to Egypt. Yet, at those very junctures in the middle of the chaos and the darkness, scriptures are fulfilled. This clearly shows that our God, he's king. No one can undo his will, thwart his plans, or outmaneuver him. Herod tried. As we saw, he delusionally attempted to interrupt God's plans. Yet at every point, he played right into the hands of God, creating the very circumstances by which a prophecy would be fulfilled. Each step of trying to kill Christ played out as fulfillment for his coming. Herod's story leaves us reflecting on two important truths. One, God has all authority over any enemy, and though it seems our hope may be deferred, it's only temporary. His plan will end up working. Even when we feel like Rachel crying into the night, the pieces really will fall into place. God is omniscient, turning things for good. He always has been. Two, Jesus is the Son of God, King of the Jews, ruler of heaven and earth, Savior of the world, Messiah foretold. And he's not merely king, he's a different sort of king. He doesn't come killing others in order to rule. He comes dying for them. His ascent to a throne isn't through deceit or murder. It's through truth-telling and self-sacrifice. When it comes to those who might rebel against his authority or rule, he isn't out for blood. Instead, he sheds his own for them. He doesn't try to sidestep the plan of God. He obeys it. Jesus isn't like earthly leaders. He's altogether different. This is our king, born into darkness, light of the world. Phew, that's so good and a lot to take in and tie together from the Bible's big-picture story. Am I right, my OOBTers? When you start to consider all the ways our time in Exodus, and Egypt even, factored into the intricate details of God's rescue plan through Jesus, when you start seeing what is often referred to as the red threads of redemption throughout these stories and the storyline of the Bible, and how there are so many commonalities and overlaps and themes, just as we've seen in our 2023 Advent episodes, when we've discussed places, people, and events in the Christmas story, and also just in our studies in Exodus and Genesis, Isaiah's prophecy, and so many more. It's really so beautiful to consider how those all point to the promise of Christ. Listen to the conclusion from Sherry Gregg's Advent book for more ties of the scarlet ribbon throughout Scripture, or those threads to pull, as I often talk about in our study times together here on OOBT. Gregg says, As Adam and Eve left the great king's royal garden in Eden, they carried with them not only the consequences of the rebellion, but the promise that God would ransom them and all creation from the clutches of sin and death. Like a scarlet ribbon ever unraveling from the Creator's hands, Adam and Eve took the promise of redemption with them into the barren wilderness of exile. In desperate hope, Adam and Eve held on to God's promise through each new sorrow the sin-cursed earth laid at their feet. Eve bore sons, Cain and Abel, only to lose them both, one to murder and the other to exile. God mercifully gave her another son, Seth, 
It was in his hands that she placed the scarlet ribbon, now stained with blood and tears. Seth passed it on to his son, Enosh, who in turn gifted it to his son. Down through the generations the ribbon passed. Abraham carried it with him to Canaan. His great-great-grandson Joseph wound the ribbon through the sands of Egypt. Moses trailed it through the wilderness of Zin as he led God's people to the promised land. Naomi pressed it into the outstretched hands of her daughter-in-law Ruth as Ruth went into the fields to glean wheat. A shepherd boy David tied it to his staff as he knelt for Samuel to anoint him king of Israel. The scarlet thread of redemption was carried by ordinary men and women throughout the corridors of human history until at last it came to rest in a manger in Bethlehem. There, a young Jewish girl, a virgin, draped the ribbon across the palm of her newborn baby. The son of God's tiny fingers curled around it, clutching it tight as his mother named him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Jesus grew. He carried the ribbon with him as he played tag in the narrow streets of Nazareth, sat at his rabbi's feet, and trained as a carpenter's apprentice. He became a man. He healed the sick, raised the dead, and opened the eyes of the blind. He showed grace and mercy to outcasts and spoke hard truths to those in power. Jesus carried the ribbon all the way to his cross. There he tied it around his hands and feet and wove it into the crown of thorns as he surrendered himself to the humiliation and agony of Roman crucifixion. Then, with a loud cry, he proclaimed, It is finished. Eden's curse was broken. The ransom was paid in full, opening the door for God's children to come home, just as the Creator promised. Beautiful, just beautiful. Oh, friends, let's pray this prayer together that I came across in the Daily Grace blog that seems to sum up so much of what we've been studying together these last two Advent episodes, as we are mere days away from Christmas Day. Please join me now. Oh, God, as we anxiously await Christmas Day, we stop to consider the purpose of this season. While this holiday boasts of gifts made by hands, we celebrate the ultimate gift, Jesus, the best gift we could ever receive. As we gaze upon the twinkling lights on houses or the ones strung upon our tree, we remember that the light of the world has come. Although our world is desperately broken, tainted by sin, sickness, conflict, and fear, we rejoice that our Prince of Peace has come. Almighty God, the birth of your Son was your plan, promised to ancestors past, sustained by your grace, fulfilled by your faithfulness alone. We praise you. We bless you. We glorify you for giving us Jesus, the true reason for this season. This world boasts in joy rooted in the perfect home or the number of presents underneath the tree. We too can find ourselves consumed with these things. Often, we can find that our imagination has been captured by what the world celebrates and desires this season. Oh God, humble our hearts. Often we can find ourselves jealous and discontent, coveting the experiences or possessions of another. Oh God, please humble our hearts. Keep us from being swayed by the consumerism of this season. Help us focus on the purpose of Christmas. For this season is not about what we gain, the perfect meal, the perfect house, or the perfect gift. This season is about Jesus. So as we gather together awaiting Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, let us rejoice over the baby born in Bethlehem. Come, let us adore him. He left his throne to dwell with us. Come, let us adore him. He took on flesh to be like us. Come, let us adore him. He healed the sick and forgave the sinner. Come, let us adore him. He offered mercy and grace to those in fear. Come, let us adore him. He remains sinless and obedient, a perfect spotless lamb. Come, let us adore him. He took our punishment upon the cross. Come, let us adore him. He rose again in victory. Come, let us adore him. His wondrous light has broken through the darkness. Come, let us adore him. Jesus. May we be as humble as you were humble, for you did not come to be served, but to serve, and you did not come to gain, but to give away. 
Jesus, may we love like you love, for you moved toward the broken and the hurting and cared for those in need. Help us remember the angel's song of good news of great joy, sung thousands of years ago, for the song of the gospel is greater than any carols we could sing. Fill our hearts with this song of Christmas. May it be on our minds as we awake in the morning and on our lips throughout the day. Above all, that we feel this good news this Christmas. May we feel gratitude for the salvation we have received and the joy over our relationship with you. And when the day is done, when all the gifts have been unwrapped and we are tucked into our beds tight, may we awake the next day with the joy of Christmas still in our hearts for the message of this season isn't for a season or for one day alone. The purpose of your coming, Jesus, the salvation you would go on to achieve is a message to remember every day of our lives. But for now, prepare our hearts for Christmas Day. Fill us with your love, joy, and peace. Stir our affections for you. We rejoice that you have come to us. We rejoice that you will come to us again. Amen. Oh, that is just such an amazing prayer to tie together all we've been studying as we prepare him room. As we anticipate celebrating Jesus as a baby born in the manger all those years ago, and as we long for the day when Jesus will return again to make all things new, just as he promised to do. The already and the not yet. And if our studies over the last couple years on OOBT have taught us anything at all, it is this. Our God is a promise keeper. He is faithful and true. What he promises will come to pass, no matter how long the waiting may seem. And through it all, he remains Emmanuel, God with us. With that thought in mind, my friends, I so hope you will return with me to come and behold him together in 2024. I will be back in the middle of January with some thoughts to challenge us to lean into the new 2024 we'll bring. And yes, you did hear that right, my precious OOBTers. The next episode will be on January 17th. OOBT is going to be taking a pause during the holiday season and into the first part of 2024 to allow me the time and space to be fully present with my family as we take moments to celebrate and be grateful for our rescuer, for the gift of God with us, especially in the hard good lives God is writing for us all. Until then, I am wishing you the merriest of Christmases, my friends. Be sure to take a look at the show notes for links to some bonus content highlighting various aspects of the Christmas story. I promise it will be so worth our time to lean in as we try to set our hearts and minds on the reason we celebrate this Christmas season. With all that said, I hope you continue in the days leading up to Christmas to make time to do as we have done in these last couple Advent episodes, to dig deep into all things related to Jesus' birth story and to remember to focus on exactly what that baby in the manger means to each one of us. So if you haven't already, be sure to go subscribe in whatever podcast app you listen to so you never miss an episode, most especially the next episode scheduled to release mid-January. And if you are enjoying our study times together, please go give us a five-star review so others can find us and join along as well. Oh, friends, I'm so thankful that you've joined me in this Advent episode. Please be sure to come back in the middle of January as we once again open those thin, crinkly pages together. In the meantime, Merry Christmas to each one of you. May your days be merry and bright as you consider the hope that is Jesus, our God, with us, now and forevermore. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.